Open your Bibles to Joshua, chapter 5, verse 13. It says, it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho. Jericho, one of the great civilizations of the ancient world. Uh, it's been excavated. We have artifacts. We know a lot about Jericho, a double-walled city, fierce warriors, that he lifted his eyes and he looked and behold, a man stood opposite him with a sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, neither. Log that away, right? Because we're going to find out who this person is. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. So Joshua fell on his face and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? Then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take your sandal off your foot for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. And I'm sure Moses told him about his burning bush experience. This is Joshua's experience with the holiness of God. Now Jericho was securely shut up because the children of Israel, none went out and none came in. It was a walled city. Um, for some reason in 2016, we didn't know anything about walls, right? Uh, walls have existed for centuries. That's how you keep people out. For some reason in America, we don't understand walls. Um, I, don't, I don't know. I don't get it. And you shall march around the city. All you men of war, and you shall go around the city once, and this you shall do for six days. And seven priests shall bear seven trumpets before the ark, and the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And it shall come to pass when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, that all the people shall shout with a great shout, and then the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up every man straight before him. <laughs> you know, I, I laugh when I read this because Joshua's a leader, right? And I, I think about God, and, and I've looked everywhere. I, I've searched the Bible all my life. For God giving somebody an easy task, right? For once, God just walks up and says, hey, God, something really simple for you to do. But he never does that, right? He comes to Noah. Noah, I want you to spend the next 100 years. Uh, there's no rivers or streams, there's no ocean, but you're going to build like the Titanic. You're going to build an ark, okay? I know you've never built anything, but get your hammer out, and you're going to build this vessel bigger than the Titanic. And Joshua, you're going to take two, three million people who've been wandering in the wilderness. They have no equipment, no money, and you're going to conquer all these cities in Canaan. And, and it just goes on and on and on, and it seems like God never gives a simple task. And I've called this series of studies in Joshua Maximum Impact. Because there is an impact God has for his people, for you and me, where he wants to maximize our lives. I'm going to keep saying that over and over. Joshua 1.8, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. You shall meditate in it, observe to do in it day and night. And everything you do, you will prosper and have great success. God wants you to live out your experience. He wants you to be successful in him. Now, as we look at the children of Israel, we're looking at historical studies, but we can draw principles, right? For them, the place of maximum impact was the land of Canaan, right? The land flowing with milk and honey. Now, we call it the promised land because it was promised to Abraham. 
God plucks this guy out of pagan Babylon, and he says, Abraham, you're going to leave your father's house. You're going to leave everything you know, all your gods, and I'm going to make out of you a great nation. And the promise to Abraham was twofold. It was land and people. And God gives him the boundaries and borders of the land. You can read it in the Bible. And your descendants will be like the stars in heaven and the sand on the seashore. And this was to be Abraham's inheritance, and, and here's why, that in you, Abraham, all nations of the earth shall be blessed. File that away. God wasn't blessing the Jews. He wasn't just blessing one nation. All nations would be blessed. By the way, guys, that happened. Uh, read sometime Thomas Cahill's book, The Gift of the Jews. He's a secular writer, but it's wonderful stuff. His subtitle, and really what his book is about, is how a tribe of desert nomads, people that have wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, changed the way everyone thinks and feels. Changed our holidays, right? Our holidays were all pagan. And now, now a girl gets pregnant in Israel by the Holy Spirit, and we celebrate Christmas. And a Jewish rabbi goes to the cross, and we celebrate Easter. And by the way, when Jesus said to his disciples, take this gospel into all the world and preach it to every person under heaven, go into all the ends of the earth, you know we were the ends of the earth? See, we're asking all the wrong questions. Pastor Bob, how does God reach pygmies in Africa? How does God reach these unreached people? You were unreached. You were the ends of the earth. There was nobody here, and God reached us. So God's plan was to take this community, to build this community, to reach all nations. And of course, the, the church is the same identity. We're to reach everyone under heaven. But for these people, Canaan was the place of maximized impact. Now, for you and me, it's different. There is no land for us. Does everybody realize that? You know, this search for a Christian utopia here, end it once and for all, okay? There's no Christian nation, right? There, there are nations that have vestige of Christian influence, like America and some other nations. Uh, but there is no Christian nation. There, there's no city that we're looking for on earth. We're looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. Uh, so I know everybody's trying to move to Texas and Florida, and, and you know, Americans are fickle, right? They're, they're trying to move everywhere. Um, don't move there, you'll ruin it, right? That's the whole idea, right? Our inheritance, listen, is in Christ. This is the promise. 75 times in the New Testament, it talks about these great and precious promises in him. Uh, Colossians is one of my favorite books of the New Testament. And Paul says this, Now this I say, lest anyone should cheat you. Watch it when you turn on Christian TV. With persuasive words. For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in the spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. And you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Listen to this. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy or empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of this world, not according to Christ. And here's, here's the prime verse. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him. You don't need the seven principles of success and, and all these methods and, and all these books and all these things. You're complete in him. He is the place of maximized impact. Now, here's the catch, and there's always a catch. 
God told Joshua, the land that you are going into, I have already given it to you. Wherever you put your foot, I've given you that land. The problem is, by faith, they had appropriated, right? So it's the same thing for you and me. Uh, Salvation is a free gift. However, we have to walk it out, right? Ephesians, walk in love, walk circumspectly, walk in the light, walk in love. We have to take steps of faith and walk out all that God has for us. And it's going to be different for each and every one of us. The Christian life will be full of many victories, right? You're going to see God open doors. You're going to have aha moments. Like we just sang, you're going to be in all of him, right? You start a Bible study, it grows. And you step out in faith and God opens a door and someone gets saved and he puts a marriage back together. And then you're going to have some setbacks. There's going to be times you or your friends are going to slide back into sin and, you know, your business or ministry might go belly up or, you know, sometimes you plan this wonderful outreach and you get 21 inches of snow, right? There's going to be mountaintop experiences and there's going to be valleys. The question is, what do we learn from that? And so that's what we're going to do today as we look at Joshua whose simple task is to take Jericho, this walled city. And um, I look at this and I'm amazed because, you know, um, this is a Herculean task. And I just picture Joshua walking around, right? And he's got two moves, right? He's got the two moves you and I have. He can lean on his own understanding. Everybody nod because you all do it. Yeah, yeah, financially I'm in trouble and I'm out of work or... You know, yeah, let me start leaning on my own understanding. Or Joshua can say, you know, God's been a pretty good general up to this point. He's drowned Pharaoh's army. He parted the Jordan. Yeah, maybe I can trust him. While he's walking around, he sees a man with a sword, right? Now, this isn't any man. In fact, this is Jesus Christ in the Old Testament, This is a theophany or a Christophany. This is the angel of the Lord. This is the same person that wrestled with Jacob, right? And he sees a man with a sword. And and I don't think the man looks like the rock. I really don't, right? I think he's just a man, right? It says he's a man. And he has a sword. And Joshua's probably pretty excited, right? Because, you know, the Israelis aren't great fighters. I don't know if you know that. They're great jet fighters today. But they, they really have never been a great standing army. They're coming out of the wilderness, And they're making these little flint knives, right? In fact, when they come into the land, uh, God says, look, make flint knives. And Joshua's probably getting real excited, like they're going to make swords. And he's like, no, you're going to circumcise everybody. So um, finally, there's a guy with a sword. And Joshua said, uh, I think this is the way he said it. Are you on their side? Are you on our side? And man, I hope you're on our side. And the man says, neither. And Joshua says, and and, and all of a sudden he understands. He says, this is the commander of the host of the army of the Lord, and you are on holy ground. And it's almost like in a moment, Joshua is undone. Uh, Just like Moses at the burning bush, all of a sudden this man, the prince of Egypt, raised in Pharaoh's house, can't even speak. And Isaiah is a man of unclean lips, and he's been the greatest prophet Israel's ever had. And Peter, when he sees the hall of fish, he says, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. When you come smack into the holiness of God and who he really is, you're just undone. And and every part of human ingenuity just drains out of you. And the reason I know this is Christ 
is because Joshua bowed down and worshiped, and the Jews don't worship anything but God. They don't worship idols, they don't worship people, and this man doesn't forbid it, right? In Revelation, John falls down to worship at the feet of an angel, and the angel says, no, see that you don't do that. He restricts worship. So Joshua has this encounter, and he asked a question, and it seems like every time somebody asked a question in the Bible, it's wrong. He says, are you on their side or are you on our side? And you see, it's the wrong question. The question is never is God on our side or somebody else's side. It's are we on God's side? That's the real question. Because what, what the angel or what Jesus or this man is drawing out of Joshua is full devotion. Joshua, this, is, this isn't like a half in, half out thing. You know, Jesus said, I wish you were hot, I wish you were cold, right? That's why Jesus had no problem with sinners. He could hang out all day with them because they were, you know, they were cold. And, and he loved people who were passionate, they were hot. But he said, if you're lukewarm, I'll spew you out of my mouth. None of us like anybody that's half in, half out. This man was calling for full de devotion, the commander of the Lord's hosts. Uh, Bono of U2 one time said, you know, we're always asking God to bless what we're doing. He goes, I try and do it the other way around. He goes, I look around and see where God's moving, and then I get involved in that because it's already blessed. And that's what's going on here. Joshua's getting a view of what God longs to do. That the angel of the Lord comes and tells Joshua, take off your sandals, you're on holy ground. I became a Christian at 21. I knew that day. Everything I loved and everything I knew was going to drop a couple tears. That God would be my all in all. He had to be. The Lord of the universe, King of the universe. How could he not be my all in all? Joshua realizes this day that, that his life is more about taking a city. It's more about leading these people. It's more about what God longs to do. And Joshua has this encounter. And he gets this command that everybody's to walk around the city for six days. The seventh day, they're going to walk around seven times. Priests are going to blow the trumpets. Trumpets moved people on that day, right? They didn't have command and control, so they blew ram's horns, shofars. And the Ark of the Covenant, and when everybody shouts and whoops it up, the walls are going to fall flat. Can you imagine telling the people that? Hey, Joshua, what's the plan? Uh, <laughs> we got some ladders and battering rams. Like, how are we going to do this? Catapults? Uh, well, I think we're going to walk around the city each and every day. Kind of take a reconnaissance. And by the way, in that day, the way you took a city was to starve them out. In 70 AD, the Romans starved 2 million Jews and then went in and raided the city. Can you imagine walking around that city, double-walled, embedded? And it raises a question... What are the Jerichos in our lives? What are the walls we're looking at? Because if you walk with Christ, there's going to be Jerichos. There's going to be one after another, from my experience. There's people that we love and know that sometimes we've been preaching to for 20 years. I think when we, when we started this church 27 years ago, I mean, planting seed in Delaware County was like you needed a jackhammer to put it, the seed down. Like, and then, you know, that's how hard the soil was. 
I think of our culture and the ideology and what's coming out of universities. You know, almost everything seems to be built on lies today. And we look at these walled cities every single day. And again, we can lean on our understanding. And we can kind of use the enemy strategy to bring these walls down. Or we can take lessons from Joshua. Joshua obeys. And in verse 20 it says, So the people shouted when the priest blew the trumpet. And it happened when the people heard the sound of the trumpet and the people shouted with a great shout that the walls fell down flat. <laughs> I can't even imagine. Then the people went up to the city, every man straight before him, and they took Jericho. It's one of the great miracles in all the Bible. Now, if you watch National Geographic and if you read history, because Jericho has been excavated, they'll say, oh, these people left and then the Jews just came in. Well, why would they leave? Or they'll say, you know what? When they blew the trumpets, there was a crack in the wall. You know, they have all these natural explanations. It's a bona fide miracle. What are the lessons for you and me from Jericho? Well, I think the first one is easy. Obedience, right? The Bible says it's better to obey than sacrifice. And obedience is hard. It really is. Right? There is a way that, that seems right to a man, right? And, you know, in Christianity, like, we're on this narrow road, and God's called us to do weird things, like give 10% of our, of our earnings to his work, and to pray, and to fast, and to serve, right? My gosh, anybody like being served? That's why you go to high-end hotels and golf courses, like we all love, you know, and now we're supposed to serve. And we spend all of our time you know, going against the grain, there's this wide road where people are living one way and then we're on this narrow road leading another way. And sometimes we get tired and sometimes we want to give into the flesh. And that's why Joshua circumcised them. It's a cutting away of the flesh, cutting away of our ideals. And we walk in obedience. And, and I think about the waiting, right? They had to walk around that city 13 days and nothing happened. They probably felt like idiots, right? Sometimes as a Christian, you feel like an idiot, right? People almost think I'm crazy. Why am I doing this? Uh, Lou Smeads is an author I like to read. And uh, he said this, waiting is our destiny. As creatures who cannot by themselves bring about what they hope for, we wait in the darkness for a flame we cannot light. We wait in the fear for a happy ending we cannot write. We wait for a not yet that feels like not never. Lou Smeads said, waiting is the hardest work of hope. The psalmist said in Psalm 37, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Wait for the Lord and keep to his way and he will exalt you and you will inherit the land. He will exalt you in due time. Abraham waited 75 years for a son. Noah waited 100 years for the storm. 400 years God's people were in Egypt. 40 years in the wilderness, and we've been waiting 2,000 years for the return of Christ. Tom Petty was right. The waiting is the hardest part of what we do. But there's something about the waiting where God's doing something in us. Here's what I found out about Jericho's. They bring us to our knees. They really do. 
We look at the situations in our lives and they look like walled cities and it looks like God's never going to show up. But the longer you live, you realize these are really gifts for us. Because without these challenges, we would never see the power of God. That's why God had them put stones back in the, in the Jordan, stones of remembrance to go back and remember what God has done. And sometimes maybe you can't remember what God has done. Maybe you can't go back in your life and say, well, God did this or he brought walls down. But you know what? You can go back to the cross. You can go back 2,000 years and look at the logic of the cross. And if God freely gave his son, how will he not give us all things? And so every time the walls come down, it's, it's, another, it's another hop in our step. It's another peg on the journey. We remember that it, it, it's God who goes before us. The second lesson is, in weakness, we're made strong. And again, I don't know why God does this, and I, I really do. But God loves to work through weakness. Now, tonight in Ardmore, I'm teaching on uh, Jesus, Matthew 10, where he takes all of his disciples and he chooses 12. Now, I studied these guys. Um, they weren't the smartest guys. By the way, I would have chosen 12 flat-out leaders. If, if we were supposed to change the world, every, every person would have been a leader. Only Peter was a leader, right? You got a guy like Thomas who doesn't even believe Jesus rose from the dead. They're not men of great faith, right? Jesus is telling the disciples the centurion, not even a believer, has more faith than anybody he's seen in Israel. And the guys he chose, he has to tell them, like every other day, ye of little faith. Well, why'd you choose them? They're not the smartest bunch. Peter couldn't even write his gospel. Mark had to write it. Luke wasn't a disciple. He had to write a gospel. Matthew's Greek is choppy. He, he quotes the Old Testament, you know, strangely. Um, these were not the apostles. They were the B-apostles, all right? <laughs> but, but God loves to... It's power through weakness. You know why? Because God can use everyone and anyone. And it wasn't about 12. It's about all who would ever come. And for some reason, God longs to do this. And this is why God, every once in a while, pulls the curtain back. Joshua, let me show you something. Curtain comes back. There's a man with a sword. Wouldn't that be great if you got up every day and you were facing something and God showed you like a man with a sword at work who was fighting on your behalf? Wouldn't that be great? Or school or wherever you go. And this curtain's pulled back, right? Elijah saw the curtain pulled back. Jesus in Gethsemane when Peter takes out his sword. And by the way, he wasn't trying to chop the guy's ear off. He was trying to chop his head off. Peter, put your sword back. I can call 120,000 angels. That's cool. That's a guy I want to follow. 120,000 angels. I Man, I'd love to see that. Guys, there is an unseen world we were never meant to see. Principalities, powers, demons. There's stuff going on you and I wouldn't believe. But God wants us to know that he's gone before us. And, and, and let me show you this. See, this is what we're never privy to. Chapter 5, verse 1 said, so it was when all the kings of the Amorites who were on the west side of the Jordan and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan before the children of Israel until we had crossed over, that their hearts melted and there was no spirit in them any longer because of the children of Israel. See, Israel's marching around the city and they feel like idiots. They have no swords, they have no equipment. They're walking around, they feel dumb. And the people are trembling. Oh my gosh, this is Israel. They drowned Pharaoh's army. 
They parted the Jordan. There, there's no spirit in them. See, that's the stuff we never hear or see. Just like Job never heard what God said to Satan, if you consider my servant Job, there's none like him in all the land. We never hear God bragging on us. We never hear what's, you know, the, the, the fear of God going out before us. And it's cliche, but God does really fight our battles. Uh, I came to Calvary Chapel in the early 80s, so I kind of was in the afterglow of the Jesus movement. I wasn't around in the late 60s or early 70s when Chuck Smith literally at Pirate's Cove in Corona Del Mar was baptizing a thousand people a week. I think we have a picture of it. And when you think about it, it's staggering. And this picture you're looking at made the cover of Life magazine. And that was the impetus of the Jesus movement. And, and here's what's remarkable about this situation. Chuck was a middle-aged, balding, somewhat overweight man who was very nondescript. Monotone voice, simply teaching the word of God simply. He didn't wear leather pants. He wasn't trying to be cool. He didn't have the latest sneakers, right? See, we think we need all this stuff. Let's trick the music up. Let's trick the lights up. Nothing wrong with music and lights. By the way, music came from this revival because in the morning they played hymns and then these hippies that were walking in barefoot started writing songs and then Chuck let them play it at night and that became contemporary worship. But see, sometimes we're like bakers. We think if we get all the ingredients, we can bake a pie. It's not how it works. The Bible says when we're weak, we're strong, that there's not many wise, not many noble that God has called. And God calls us to do silly things. So at the end of the day, we would know that the power was of God and not us. And so the people take the city. Now, there's a little caveat here that I want to show you, verse 21. When they took the city, they utterly destroyed all that was in the city, both man and women, young and old, ox and sheep and donkey with the edge of the sword. And this is where people say, time out. I can't accept that. And, if I, and, and maybe as far as I'll go, I'll believe in Jesus in the New Testament, turn the other cheek, but I can't believe in the God of the Old Testament. And people will ask, Pastor Bob, I mean, that sounds like terrorism. That sounds like some religions we see today where they're trying to conquer in the name of God or, or whatever. And what you need to understand is that God is doing two things here. He's bringing his people into this land and he's judging these seven Canaanite nations. God is the judge of all the earth. He'll do right. But can I say this? Justice is his strange work. What God longs to do is save. John 3, 17 says God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world. He sent his son into the world. The world might be saved. That's what God longs to do, to save and restore and to bless. He's a blessing God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one, and you shall love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul. He's a blessing God. But there is time when God must judge. These seven nations of the Canaanites, God had bared long with them, 400 years of gross sexual immorality, child sacrifice, human rights that are detestable in any scale. Let me give you an example. So I read widely in several areas. Probably the most I've read on of anything in history is the Holocaust. 
And the reason I'm drawn to the Holocaust is because I understand fallen nature. The Holocaust was 80 years ago. It's not in ancient history. In a Western, modern, nominal Christian nation, we put 6 million people in the ovens. And by the way, the people we put in ovens were clockmakers and engineers. And brilliant. So I read a lot about the Holocaust. There's a story of a girl, little girl named Zosha. One of the Germans became aware of her beautiful diamond-like dark eyes. I could make two rings out of them, he said. One for myself and one for my wife. His colleague is holding the girl. Let's see whether they are so beautiful. Let's examine them in our hands, the soldier began to laugh. One of the wittiest proceeds to take the eyes out. What happens next is the fainting child is lying on the floor. Instead of eyes, two bloody wounds are staring. The mother, driven mad, is held by the other woman. Soon after, they decide it's necessary to annihilate the child. I asked my assistant to type that up so I could read it correctly instead of handwriting it. And she came in with tears in her eyes. She said, Bob, I thought there was going to be like a happy ending to this. No, there's no happy ending. And that's one story of thousands of injustice. Now, let's fast forward to our day. So I'm walking in my neighborhood the other day on a nice leisurely walk, and I see a virtue signaling sign. Don't pretend you don't know what they are. $800,000 house with this sign. You've all seen it. We believe. And I thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to put a we believe sign in my lawn with the Apostles' Creed. <laughs> I believe in God, the maker of heaven and earth. <laughs> That's going to be my virtue signaling. Black Lives Matter. No human is illegal. The third one, I don't even understand. Tell me, we'll get lunch in the cafe. Love is love? I don't even know what that means. <laughs> Women's rights are human rights. Science is real. Water is life. And then way at the bottom, I need glasses. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Do you think what was going on in Jericho was a threat to justice? Do you think what they were doing in Jericho was as bad as the Holocaust? Yeah, I think so. How about 400 years? But see, the judge of the, all the earth can't judge Jericho, but yet we want to throw away the key for almost anything that happens today. Do you know where our sense of justice comes from? The heart of God. God is a God of justice. God is holy. God is love. He is your sense of justice is because God is just. And the judge of all the earth said it was time and enough's enough. And the same people who wrote this virtue, virtue signaling probably would have spared the people of Jericho and then that would have just continued perpetually. And just like God did at Sodom and just like God did in Noah's day, God chose to just end it. And the judge of all the earth will do right. And spared hundreds of thousands of being treated that way. Uh, the next principle is this. God's into the long game. Everybody understand that? Now look, the walls of Jericho falling, cool, right? Hope we see a couple of those in our lifetime. 
And, and I've seen great stuff. I'm sure you have, your life, some of the things we live through. You know, there's going to be some stuff like, well, 13 days. Yeah, this is cool. But generally, God's into the long game. There was a day where Jesus stood on the Mount of Olives and he said, if you say that, I think it's Mark, Mark 13, somewhere around there. Jesus said, if you say that mountain, be thou removed and cast in the sea and don't doubt the things that you say, um, you'll have whatever you believe. Now, faith teachers kind of twist that and they say your words create reality and you can speak to things and such. Here's what Jesus was saying. If you stood on the Mount of Olives on a clear day, you could see the Herodian. The Herodian was a summer palace that Herod built for himself. And he had men move mounds of dirt for years to create, because you know, they loved to have summer palaces where they could have flowing water and gardens. So they built this literal mountain and he put a summer palace there. Jesus said to 12 disciples and followers who had no resources, you could say to that mountain, be thou removed and cast in the sea. And if you don't doubt the things you say, believe they can come to pass, you'll have whatever you say. That's exactly what happened. The gospel went in all the world. The only reason you and I know Herod is from the Christmas story. In the days of Caesar Augustus and Herod, um, because of Jesus, we know who he is. And today when you go to Israel, you'll see Herod's ruins, but you'll see Jesus' legacy, which is people. And if you look at the long game, it's amazing. When we stand in Caesarea and we look at that amphitheater Herod built, you know, think about this. We are Gentiles with Jewish tour guides looking at Roman ruins. See how God turned that around? But that's the long game. The problem is we want everything this quick. But God's all about putting mountains in our rearview mirror. He's all about making walls fall. And sometimes a little longer than we think. Now, those are lessons from victory. But we have one last lesson, and it comes from the only defeat in the book of Joshua, chapter 7, verse 1. But the children of Israel committed a trespass regarding the accursed things. Now, it says the Lord was with Joshua, his fame went out through the country. Um, the accursed things, Achan of the tribe of Judah took the accursed things, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. Now, Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, that's a city, beside Beth-Avon, on the east side of Bethel, and spoke to them, saying, Go up and spy out the country. And so the men went and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua, and they said, and they're pretty full of themselves, uh, we don't need to take everybody up there. Take two or 3,000 men. Let's get Ai. Don't weary everybody, just a few. So 3,000 men went up there from the people, and fled before Ai, and the men of Ai struck down about 36 men, for they chased them from the gate as far as Sherebim and struck them down on the descent. Therefore the hearts, this is Israel, flushed from victory, melted and became like water. Joshua tore his clothes, fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening. He and the elders of Israel... And they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites? Oh, that we have been content and dwell. Oh, my gosh. Like, he's the one guy that never complained. Now he's the leader, one defeat, and he sounds like the rest of them. What's the lesson from failure? <laughs> and you're going to fail, right? What do we learn from failure? Well, I think what we learn here is the sin of overconfidence. 
You know, I look at this and I just chuckle because they, they come into the land and God says, um, when you step over the Jordan, I'm going to take away your allowance. The man is going to stop. Right? 40 years. Imagine that. Every day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, the manna. God's like, all right, go in the Jordan, and you're going to have your own homes and wells, like manna stops, right? So I remember when my first daughter graduated college, you know, I remember that day going, you know, you get them off the insurance and stuff like that, right? It's like a wonder, you know, you think diapers is a big, like, increase? Like, where do you get them off insurance and all that? And that's what God's saying, like, I'm getting you off the dole here. No more manna. But you get a couple of victories under your belt. And all of a sudden, you know a few things. Um, you know, my mom gave me this advice, and I followed it. And I never really taught on parenting until I had raised these humans we created, right? And I, I remember people like, oh, I read Dobson. I read that, you know, this is what you should do. With child. And I'm like, you know what? Until I raise a few, I'm not saying a word about parenting, okay? But we kind of get overconfident, right? And what I've learned is that, you know, what worked yesterday in a victory isn't the power I need for this situation. Now, there's lessons learned. But I think the overconfidence leads to prayerlessness, lack of devotion. I've been there before. I can handle this. You know, Jesus said, Sin, you can't play around with sin like that. You'll cut your arm off. That, that's how lethal it is. You've you got to be on your guard the rest of your life. But we think we're strong. Oh, yeah, you know, I, I can do things with people of the other sex. I can do it. You know, and, and we get loose with things because we're flush with victory. And we look at somebody like Peter who makes this great confession, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, and then he denies Jesus to a little girl. And David, who wins all these battles, sins with Bathsheba. And on and on and on it goes. Paul said, in my flesh dwells no good thing. The Bible says sin is crouching at our door. When we're weak, that's when we're strong. And we got to remember that. We're frail. We're human. And Israel gets overconfident here, and it leads to a great defeat. Why? Because they have more trust in their program. They have more trust in the methods. They have more trust in all the things that were going on, and it made them confident, and they forgot the power of God. I'll never forget, I was at a very large church, and I was on a, you know, uh, it was a conference. There were several speakers. And I'll never forget, the pastor came up to us and said, look, now that we've done a service, we can just put the next one on video and we can all go out to lunch. And it sent shivers down my spine that they could be so confident that what was on video that we didn't have to be around the people anymore. And look, I, I believe in video. I think it works. But I have no interest in going out to lunch. I want to be around God's people. That's why I'm here. And there's this overconfidence and this lack of relying on God. Uh, there was a time if you walked in my house, I could tell you where every piece of furniture came from. God brought us this. God brought us that. God brought us this. Now, now I can buy furniture, right? But I, I can still point to things in my life and say, this was God. 
Yeah, he took the training wheels off. And the only way you could say it's God is if you take bigger steps. Because if everything you're doing, you can do, you don't need a man with a drawn sword. So I'm going to step on some toes out in TV land. Nobody here, of course. So everybody my age I know is buying another home. Shore home, mountain home, Florida home. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, greenhouse, the church, we bought John Clifford a house for 25 grand. And then we fit it out. How's that for a goal? How about, how about buying second homes in those places? See? That's great success. My challenge is, if you want to maximize your impact, maximize, you can buy a summer home. But is there something where you're all in with God, where you need a man with a drawn sword to know that he's gone before you? I look at the book of Acts. It says they turned the world upside down. And yet there's no hero in the book of Acts. I mean, Paul's there a lot, and certainly the apostles. The Holy Spirit is the prime mover in the book of Acts. And the Holy Spirit just comes upon individuals and uses them, uses their weakness, and great things happen. I drew that dash for you early in the series. Don't go to your grave not believing God for great things, not stepping out in faith not seeing walls fall down. It's the greatest part of the journey. And that's when you sit around and you have stories to tell of God's faithfulness and his goodness.